Well, it is wonderful to be here today. We look forward to being here this weekend. I always look forward to being at the congregation here and especially look forward to being with Frank and Tina and Wade and Taylor and, and so excited about our, our time together today. I'd like to take our study today from the 51st Psalm. I know uh, this is always for me, well, I say not always, but very often an intimidating sermon to preach. And it gets intimidating when someone says, that is my favorite passage. And I think, oh no, I hope I don't disappoint. And yet at the same time, I realize that you could assign this psalm to every one of your teachers here and say, we're going to have everyone teach it. And each one would be unique. And each one would be beneficial. And by the time you went through it and everybody had shared what this the truth that this speaks, you would say, I am really glad we did that. We should find another passage to do that with. And that's what I hope I leave you with today. Not that I am going to take an exhaustive study of Psalm 51. But I do want, if you don't already have an appetite that loves this passage, I want to whet that appetite. I want you to love it. If you already love it, I want to increase that passion for it. I want to spark something. But most of all today... I want us to understand what David seemed to understand about renewing the spirit when you've sinned. That is something we all have in common. All have sinned. All have come short of the glory of God. Darren, you did a wonderful job of expressing that in our prayer before God this morning. So what do we do with that? There's a lot of ways to handle guilt. There's a lot of ways to deal with the stress associated with sin and the guilt we have regarding it. How do we process that guilt? We all process it differently, but there is a healthy way to process it that, David, we're going to learn through the 51st Psalm. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This word create here, it comes from a Hebrew word that, if I understand right, literally means to form by cutting. You see, this creation that's going to happen inside us does not mean it's going to be easy and does not mean it's going to be painless. Part of the problem I have in struggling with the guilt of sin is dealing with the pain associated with sin's consequences. And I, I don't think really I'm handling it well or it's okay until that pain's gone. And yet, in fact... The psalmist David says there will be a cutting. There will be something formed by cutting within us a clean, literally a Hebrew word that means pure, clear opposed to filthy. Our guilt is filthy. Our mistakes are filthy. We want to clean it. We want to polish it. We want to get rid of that ugliness. And so that's what is being prayed for. Formed by cutting in me something pure, something clear, and I want it to be my heart. This word heart in the Hebrew is widely used throughout scriptures to use to describe feelings, will, and intellect. So as you think about this, that's what he's saying. The way I feel, the way I will, the things I want, the things I have passion for, my intellect, the things I think about. Formed by cutting in me something pure, something clear, and change the way that I feel. Change the way that I want Change the things that I think about. Renew them. You know, this comes from a Hebrew word that means to be new. And it's causatively, by the very context, means rebuild. 
And this Hebrew word is actually used in other manuscripts to talk about renovations and rebuilding. And in fact, that's what needs to happen. When we've made a mistake, we need to rebuild. It's, even if it's between us as individuals and I offend you, or I do something horrible in my relationship with Rachel that needs to somehow get fixed, we have to rebuild. You have to rebuild trust. You have to re rebuild emotion. You have to rebuild many different things in that relationship. And it's no more true with anything than it is with our relationship with God. And so he says, form by cutting in me and making something pure, something clear about the way I feel, my will, my intellect, so I can rebuild what's been torn down, what's been destroyed. Something that's steadfast, literally comes from a Hebrew which means to set up right or to erect. When I preached this recently at Manteca, I was looking at a room full of iron workers, structural steel erectors. They do the superstructure. They do what we, as constructors, do finishes and make look pretty. Not that structural still isn't pretty, but, you know, it doesn't hold out rain. It doesn't give you an architectural finish. But without it, you have nothing that will stand up. All those pretty things and all those nice finishes have nothing to attach to. And so what the psalmist wants is something steady, something that is erect, that is upright, that everything else can be built upon. And it's, he wants it to be his spirit. Literally, this is from a Hebrew word that means wind or breath. Within me. A Hebrew word that means to the nearest part. It's at your core. It's everything within, within you. And so if I were to retitle this sermon... I would say rebuild my spirit. Fix it. Help it be built back the way it needs to be. Where do you start? You start in Psalm 51. Whenever you go to read a psalm or any book in the Bible, do you ever take it and pay attention to the little words that start it? I think there's a lot said within the little words in my marginal reference. Or in the passage right below the numbers, you can look at yours and see what it says. Mine says, a prayer of repentance. Now, I've already indicated that in the intro, but what was he repenting about? My Bible goes on to say, check yours and see if it says it, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. He being David. This psalm, this is written after Nathan the prophet has come to David and after David has gone to Bathsheba. You say, who's Bathsheba? You need to go and read 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1 through chapter 12 and verse 23. It's not a super long reading. I'll do my best to summarize it and still get back to the Psalm 51. But I have to summarize it. I have to remind you, even if you know it well, I have to remind you what he's feeling guilt over. And this does two things. It is going to help to humanize our heroes of, of faith. We tend to look at them and think they didn't make any mistakes, and yet that's, there's nothing further from the truth. And I hope this helps you if you're one who says, you know what, I know God forgives people, but you don't know what I did. And you know what, I don't know what you did. You don't know what I did either. The scripture is amazing in that it gives us insight into what people really did. 
their ugliness to help us deal with our ugliness. David did something ugly. If you go read about in this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 11, you'll find out that David, he was getting on in his age as kingship, and he walks out onto the roof of his house one evening. It says he arose off his bed that evening. And as he goes out there in the evening, he's already been to bed. Now the sun's going down and he gets up. That says a lot about us. I don't want to make too much out of that, but be careful. Be careful how you spend your time. David had stopped going to war and his armies were out now. The people were fighting for the nation of Israel, but David was at home. He goes out on his roof after evening and he sees as he looks down upon those around his palace, he sees a beautiful, beautiful woman and she's bathing. They didn't have indoor plumbing. They didn't have a lot of what we have today. She's bathing and he can see her from the top of his roof. And he inquires, he wants to know who she is. And his servants tell him, oh, that's Bathsheba. That's the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Now you read up on Uriah, he's one of David's mighty men. He's not just an average guy. David, at that point, should have said, oh, my bad. But that's not what he did. He sends for her and have her, has her brought to him. Long story short, they committed adultery. She goes home. Don't know how long, if it was a one-time thing or if this was an affair that lasted a little while. The scriptures don't tell. But what we do know is she got pregnant. She sends message back to David, I'm pregnant. Now David's scrambling. You ever get to something where now you're scrambling to cover your tracks? David is feeling it. He sends for Uriah. He has him brought back from the army. They have small talk at the palace. How's the, how's the battle going? How's this? How's that? Uriah gives him the report. He says, hey, Uriah, I've prepared you a, a nice feast. I want you to go, and go home to your wife, and then you can go back to, to Joab and, and the armies. David doesn't do that. David goes and stays at the palace with the servants, and the next day, or Uriah doesn't do that. He stays at the palace. The next day, David says, Uriah, why didn't you go home to your wife? Uriah says, look, I'm your soldier. I am Israel. I am here to do whatever you want me to do, but far be it from me why my brethren are out there fighting that I go home and have pleasure with my wife. It's not the right thing to do. I will guard the palace. I will be here, but I won't go home. David says, easy, easy. It's okay. I understand. I respect that. Stay, in, stay one more night and you go back tomorrow. That night, you know what David did to Uriah? He got him drunk. And then tried to send him home again. This night, Uriah didn't even make it to servants' quarters. He slept on the steps of the palace. I don't know if he passed out. I don't know what happened. But I learned two things from Uriah. I can't blame my bad decisions on being drunk. Here's what I believe about that for what it's worth. It's my two cents. I'm not saying it's doctrine. But people do, under the influence of alcohol, what they wanted to do all along. They just lost their filters. Don't blame it on the substance. Blame it on the heart. Uriah did not give in to do what the flesh would have wanted to do, even in those he had a moral compass about him. David learned that. The next day, David pens a letter, seals it with his seal that tells Joab the commander, you need to put Uriah at the front of the battle lines and attack the city. 
Get as close as whatever you have to do to make sure Uriah dies. And that's what happened. In fact, they had to get so close, and he was such a valiant soldier, that there was a lot of loss of life that day. And Joab was so concerned at how many people died trying to get Uriah killed that he had to send the messenger. He says, and you be sure you tell David, because he's going to be upset at this. You be sure and tell, and Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And the runner goes back and gives David that message. And David says, it's okay. We're fighting for the Lord. He thinks he's hidden it. All's well that ends well, right? Not right at all. Nathan the prophet comes into him. Tells him a story. You remember David was the shepherd boy. David was the one that grew up taking care of sheep. And he says, Nathan the prophet says, David, we have a problem. You got these two people that are, their places are right next to each other. One's a very wealthy man. Herds and flocks, I mean, just in abundance. And he's got a little poor neighbor kind of just on the other side of his fence. He doesn't have herds and flocks. In fact, you know what? He doesn't even have children. He has one little ewe lamb. It's not ewe lamb, it's E-W-E, but it's a little female lamb. He is so close with that lamb, that lamb eats at his table. It sits in his lap. Now, I don't know if you have a lamb that do that, but I know some of you have pet, pets that do that, dogs and cats. Imagine if what happened to you and your little lap dog, your kitty, what happened to this man? He says that rich man had guests come to his house. And rather than go out and just pick one of his massive flock and kill it and feed his neighbor, he goes over the fence, takes that little pet lamb, he kills it and feeds it to his his guests. David is incensed. His anger has aroused and he says, this man will die for what he's done. And he will give four out of his flock to repay this poor man. And you know what Nathan said? David, thou art the man. You had wives. God has given you everything you could possibly want, David. But that wasn't enough for you. Uriah had one wife that... His, his treasure in life. And you coveted her and you took her. David, you're that man. He has been found out. He is guilty. What do you do now? You know what Nathan said? David said. Nathan said to David, he says, David, because you sin like this. War will never depart from your house. Side note, I've been giving you lots of personal opinions today. People and our government and this world talks about how are we going to keep that Middle East from warring and fighting and battling and killing one another and how can we get stability there? It's not happening in Greg Branch's opinion. War will never leave the house of David. And it hasn't since. And we've had government after government try to fix that region. Number two, David, what you did in private with Bathsheba, others will do in public in full, sight, in full sunlight with your wife. Number three, and this is the hardest one. <coughs> David, the baby's going to die. The baby dies? Why does the baby die? What did the baby do wrong?
I can't leave you hanging asking that question, so I'm going to give you another two cents worth of my opinion. That was God's blessing to that baby. Can you imagine the life that baby would have had, the house it grew up in? War was going to be a part of that household from now on. His own uncles, his own half-brothers, brother, would commit this sin with David's concubines and wives. The family was going to be absolutely dysfunctional. This baby gets to go to paradise. This baby doesn't have to go through all that the rest of the household of David would have to deal with the rest of their lives. Now me thinking that about this baby of David and Bathsheba helps me deal with some of the atrocities that take place in our world today including abortion. It doesn't relieve those who are guilty of sin, but it helps me understand the baby's going to be all right. What do you do when you've been faced with that kind of consequence and that kind of realization of your sins? I'll tell you what David did. He spent seven days he takes off his kingly garments. He humbles himself, the scriptures say, and he begins to fast and to pray. He won't eat. He won't drink. Seven days. Can you? What would you pray about for seven days? Psalm 51 gives us insight. This is the kind of guilt, this is the kind of core we come to as we come to the prayer of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. God, you can erase this. Erase it, dear God. You know what I did. Please, I need mercy. You ever feel like you need mercy and you just think you didn't deserve it? I hope you realize now, yes, we all can have it. He's got murder. He's got lies. He's got adultery. He's got a dead baby. All because of his sin. And he pleads for forgiveness and tender mercy. And he asks to be washed me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Fix it. Wash it. Clean it. For I acknowledge my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. His sin will remain before him. I want you to know that David, God extends his mercy to him and he does offer forgiveness, but God does not take away the consequences. And I need to remember that too. Sometimes you need to remember that. When we sin, when we make mistakes, we can be forgiven, but there can be some tough consequences that we're going to have to live with. And the fact we have to live with them does not mean God is still angry with us. It means it's a consequence that I have to deal with and it may ever be before me. But that will not rob me of my spirit being rebuilt. That is the fascinating thing in my mind about Psalm 51. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. I got to bring that one right back up here because this is a 
This is a problem verse for me. It was a thing that kept me from preaching Psalm 51 for the longest. How is it that David can say against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight? What about Uriah? What did he do wrong? Did he not sin against Uriah? What about the army? There were other people that died. There was a massive battle. There was a lot of loss of life. And the only purpose of that battle, they had sieged the city. They didn't need to do that. It was to kill this guy. So what about the army? Didn't he sin against them? What about Bathsheba? Did she even have a choice in this? What do you do in those days when the king summons you? What about David's family? Did you not sin against them? What about the rest of Israel that would now have battle and wars forever? How does he say against you, God, and you only I have sinned? To me, the answer to that is the second half that I've underlined, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. It's that second half. You know, the fact is, no man, no woman is just or blameless on their own. I said this at the beginning, all has sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know who that includes? That included Uriah. That included his whole army. That included Bathsheba. That would include his family. In fact, it would include Israel. Everybody has sinned. No man, no woman is blameless on their own. Who then could condemn King David? Even Nathan the prophet couldn't say he was sinless. So if you're king and you can show other people where they've also sinned, it almost reminds me of when Jesus says, him that with us without sin, let him cast the first stone. It's almost in my mind that David knew everybody else were sinners too. He wasn't the only one, but now it's different with God. God's not that way. Because God is supreme over King David, and because God is just and blameless, David has no way to defend himself before God. It's almost as if David thinks he can make a case for himself to somehow get off dealing with mere humans. But with God, there is no way. God's perfect. God is blameless. God is, he, he's everything. I have no case that I can even make for myself. I can't even declare I'm king. I get to do what I want to do. Not before God. It's in that sense, I believe, that David would have to say, against you and you only have I sinned. You're the one I have. I am totally a pawn before your throne, dear God. Please forgive me. Not that all these other people weren't also sinned against, but they too had sin in their life somewhere, somehow, even though some of it may be in a closet that you and I never get to know about. But they had their own problems, but not God. And so David goes on to say, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This verse has been so misused, misinterpreted, misapplied to say that babies are born in sin. That David here was saying, when I was born, I was a sinner. I want you to know, whatever this verse is saying, he is not making a doctrine that babies are born in sin. In fact, I believe the context of the very reason this passage and this prayer is being stated is proof that babies aren't born in sin. Because do you remember the end of this story? We may, we'll get to it at the end. But David ultimately says, that baby cannot now come to me. The baby died. That baby cannot now come to me, but I shall go 
I can go to the baby. I got a hope still. I got a chance, and I'm going to repent. That baby was sinless. And that baby, though made uncircumcised, was still going to be saved. We learn the same thing in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 14, Mark chapter 10 and verse 14, Luke chapter 18 and verse 16. Unless you become as little children, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Children are not lost. Whatever this verse is saying, I do not believe it's saying babies are born in sin. What I believe David is saying is one of two things. He is just using this poetic language to say, I've always been horrible. You ever feel that way? Like there's just nothing good? And it's just, you weren't always really horrible. But you made such a big mistake, now you feel like you're worthless. He could be saying that, or he could also be saying, my mother was a sinner. Everybody's been sinners. We've, we've all had this problem. Even my mama. We think our moms are like perfect, right? Even my mom. Behold, you desire the truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. God, I know what you desire for me is truth on the inward parts. This is beginning to be the first step of me understanding how to rebuild my spirit the way David understood to rebuild his spirit. It cannot, it will not, it never can happen without truth. And without that truth and the wisdom that comes from God through it. David, whatever you believe about sin, whatever you believe about the Bible, and whatever you believe about God's grace, you cannot take truth out of the most inner part of your being. It is possible that people desire to take doctrine and truth to the point that they remove any spiritual impact to their life and any real feeling of commitment to God and only try to do right or not wrong and make it just a merit-based relationship with God and it will absolutely fail. I agree with that. But it's not the problem of trying to do what the Bible says. It's not the problem of truth. It's when truth will not internalize to the heart in the inner part, the hidden part to make me to know wisdom. That truth is truth regardless of whether I believe it. But once I believe it in my most inward part and it changes the way I think, now I am rebuilding my spirit. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clear. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Was hyssop was used as basically a, a, a disinfectant. And that's what he talks about wanting God to do to his conscience, to his inside, spiritually speaking. He says, then I'll be clean on the inside like I need to be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. What is whiter than snow? I'm not talking about the snow that everybody's driven on and you're following people up to Mammoth. I'm talking about the snow where nobody's ever been. Nothing's touched it yet. He says, you wash me, and I'll be whiter than that. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. He describes his guilt and his pains like broken bones. Never break a bone? If you have, you know what he's talking about. Except not just one. He says it's like inside of me are broken bones. I want you to help me to hear joy and gladness again. I want to be able to heal from this. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. We get this part of the prayer. We know what he's looking for. We want it too. So how do we get it? He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I want you to remind you at this point of those Hebrew words, 
and indulge me if you will. I'm going to italicize it. But I want to put another way to translate and read this from the strict Greek or, or Hebrew. Form by cutting in me pure, clear feelings and intentions, O God. O God, rebuild and stand upright my breath in the nearest part within me. God, you can fix this. And do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. I don't know what David understood about the Holy Spirit. I don't even know what I understand about the Holy Spirit. But I know David knew it could be lost. And so he pleased in the midst of this repentant prayer to be able to stay in the presence of God and to have God's spirit within him. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. God, I want this joy again. I want your generous spirit. How am I going to get it? Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. You see what David is starting to transition with here as he prays for this forgiveness? He says, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to take what you're offering, what I'm asking for, and I'll teach it to other people. And people will be converted when they hear my story. Why is all this dirt given to us about David? So that we can take and say, you know what? I can make it too. I may have to follow this pattern, but God will forgive me too. But I want you to know, it's not enough to realize that God will forgive you. And as one person said, and probably has. we got to take it to the point that we know it happens and we're going to tell somebody else too. You know, Paul, James said, confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another that you may, may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. David has been willing to confess his sin and now he says, I'm willing to help teach others and have others converted. You know what else he says? He says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. He says, if you can deliver me from this guilt of this bloodshed, I will sing praise. You know, there's one thing I think we all probably notice, whether or not we really register or not. I'm not saying this is the only reason this happens. But when we dealt with guilt, and when we're dealing with getting over guilt and getting over and learning to deal with the consequence of our sin, one of the first things I notice that happens with many, if not most, of the people I am able to work with is they say, I just can't sing anymore. By the way, they'll also say, and I really, I don't pray like I used to. 
Now, if I'm talking to you, and if you're like, dude, I, I'm there. You need to be like David. You need to pray for this forgiveness, ask for truth, acknowledge the repentance that's going to take place, and then start singing again. You can say, yeah, Greg, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. That's not the point. In fact, you know what the scriptures say about our singing? It says, sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. I am so glad it doesn't say sing and make melody in your vocal cords. It says the melody is in your heartstrings. It's a sincere and pure message. You can be tone deaf. It's okay. In fact, I want you to tell me, I have received as many chills, good chills, listening to someone that doesn't know how to carry a tune, but you know they're carrying the theme of that message. They believe in God's grace. They believe in his mercy. They believe in the sacrifice of his son, and they're going to sing it. And you know, if the truth be told, in most audiences like this, there aren't even one handful of people that any of us would really pay to hear each other sing. Now, I know in this audience, I think there's at least a few. But that's, there's a lot of us here that you wouldn't pay to hear any one of us sing. And yet, how many times do people come in an audience and say, how do y'all do that without any instruments? That is so pretty. I don't know how. Sing and make a melody in your heart. Dear God, give me this and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. If you're having trouble, I'm telling you, sing. Sing in the assembly and when you're alone in your car, you sing. Sing praises of his righteousness. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Pray to God to help you with this. It's not going to be simple. If you're at the point you've gotten where you can't sing and you're having trouble praying, it will not be easy and it might even be painful. And so you just do it anyway. Show forth the praise. I am not talking about fake it till you make it. I am talking about you follow what God's will is revealing and just watch how it will be fulfilled and true in your life too. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. In the midst of David's sin, there was no amount of lambs or bulls or rams or oxen he could sacrifice to make up for that story we studied. He's like, you don't want, it does nothing. That's not what is going to work. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. David had to get to the point that he was broken and falling down at the throne of God. And you and I do too. That doesn't mean he won't forgive us. That means we are now taken to a point he can begin to accomplish in us what needs to happen. To do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. It can be rebuilt. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. With burnt offering and with whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. When everything gets put back in place, it's not that the worship wasn't good. It's not that God didn't want their praise and their sacrifice. He wanted it from a place of purity and a place of humility. 
I want you to realize the change that took place in Psalm 51 in tone from David's sorrowful confession after a contrite heart, after repentance and after humility. Now he says, we will worship, we will sacrifice, and we will bring offerings. You notice on my PowerPoint, I says, and we'll eat. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 20, this whole time, He's been praying for seven days that that baby's sick. He notices on this seventh day something's changed. I don't know how big the room is. We'll pretend that David was over here. And as he was in his sackcloth and ashes praying, having fasted for seven days, he notices. It's not that he's kept his face to the ground. In fact, you don't have to keep your face to the ground to pray. You can be driving in traffic with your eyes wide open and pray. But he notices across the room they have assembled and they're whispering. You know, you can just tell when something's changed, when something's up, and he could tell. And he asked if the baby was dead. They don't want to tell him. They're afraid. He's been acting like this while the baby's sick. What will he do if he finds out the baby died? Yes, the baby's dead. You know what David did? He got up. He went home, he cleaned up, he changed his clothes back into his kingly garments, and he went to worship. He went to humble himself and do sacrifice and offering, just like Psalm 51 says. When you're dealing with the complexities of guilt and of regret and consequence to your sin, do not keep yourself away from church thinking you'll come back once you get it all straightened out. It doesn't straighten out at home. It doesn't straighten out when I'm wallowing in my guilt. It straightens out when we bring ourselves back before the throne of God and in truth, as we've already studied, pour out our praise and listen to his word for that wisdom that is deep within. After he worshiped, then he went home and ate. You ever fast? Oh, when the fast's over, it's hard to get me to think about anything except eating. Praised God even before he ate. But now he did eat. And some of you, when you go through great times of stress, you starve yourself. Sometimes it's because your stomach is just, it makes it, you have a nervous stomach and you just don't digest well and, and it makes you feel sick to eat. We learned from David, you got to take care of your physical body too. Don't destroy your health physically by not eating right or by not eating. Something that practical when people are going through great issues in their life can help everything else to balance out. The spiritual is all important. There is a time to take care of even your physical need. Just like David, we need to move on in our service to God. Today, I ask you, do you bring a contrite heart? A contrite heart decides it will believe in God. Mark 16 and 16, he that believeth and is baptized should be saved. I want you to understand this belief goes beyond agreement with Scripture. 
What do I mean by that? You know, I know some people read the Bible and so they're like, yeah, I agree with that. That's good. I like what you guys believe over there. I like what the church stands for. I agree with that. But now they'll get to something. They're like, but I don't understand. We're about to commune and there's about to be one loaf and one cup. And it's like, seriously, that's gross. I am not going to eat after anybody and I'm sure not going to drink after anybody. And especially not after what we've gone through this last two years. See, it's one thing to do it when you agree with it. It's belief and it's faith when you do it and it's not what you agree with. It's not what's comfortable. It's not the way you think. I haven't humbled myself before God until I'm doing something that I don't want to do, but he said it's the best thing to do and I'm going to believe it, so I'll do it. And that cup is one of them for Greg Branch. In fact, Rachel and I would date and if she wanted a drink of my soda... It's like, you can have it. Well, you know what finally fixed it for me? <laughs> Some of you might appreciate this. Children. <laughs> they were always getting into everything. I, I've gotten over that. It, it just took a long time. But now I'm still not going to share a cup with you. If we have potluck today, I'm not going to share a drink with you. I'll give you mine. But when we get ready to commune and we, this cup goes around like the Lord instituted it, I'm not going to give it a second thought. I don't care if I'm first or last. And I've even stopped spinning the cup trying to figure out if there's a place nobody else drank yet. I believe it. 100%. Like Peter said, to who else do I go? What, where else is, gives me words of life? That's belief. If we believe... Are we willing to change repentance? That prayer of repentance we just talked about. David says, I'll change everything. I'll start from the inside out. The deepest part within me. Fix it. That's repentance. He says, and I'll confess. Now, as a Christian, when you want to come in obedience, what is the confession you make? You need to come up here and confess all your sins? No, that would just take too long, right? And you couldn't even remember everything anyway. And so what if you forgot something? Then you have to do it again? No. When you come in obedience to the gospel, you're confessing something particular. The Ethiopian eunuch said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. When Jesus asked his disciples, you know what Peter stood up and said? He said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what did Jesus say to, to Peter's confession? He says, Bless you, Peter, because you didn't learn that confession from men. You got that from God. Today, that's the confession we're talking about. That you believe so much that you're willing to change your life and you will be willing to tell people you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And today, if you'll do that, you need to be baptized. Galatians 3.27, as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's only one baptism according to Ephesians 4 and 5. Therefore, it must be the one that's recorded in Acts chapter 8 when the Philip and the eunuch came to a certain water. Philip had been preaching Jesus. They came to the water. He says, well, here's water. Why can I be baptized? He said, if you believe, you may. He said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That helps us understand how much belief and what all a person needs to know. It's pretty basic. They may not understand all the reasons why there's one cup and one loaf. They may not understand everything we believe about the Holy Spirit. In fact, if we're honest, we all don't even understand each other. But you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that belief sets your mindset of obedience and humility that you're going to accept anything. 
And that's the one baptism. The Bible says he stopped the chariot. They went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Romans chapter 6 says it's a burial. The two of them went into the water, and he immersed him. He buried him in that water. And the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Today, if you're a Christian, and you've sinned, and you're like, you know what? I'm kind of like David, though. I knew better. I was a child of God. But I did it anyway. You don't have to be rebaptized. It's a one-time thing. But we can confess our faults one to another, pray one for another. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If you're here and you've sinned and you want the prayers of the church, then we want to we want to pray with you. We want to pray for you. If you want to come in obedience to the gospel, we want to assist you in that. Either class while we stand and see. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.